our, the response is different, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But chapters 11 and 12 actually trace increasing hostility towards Jesus. So the rejection tends to get more pressurized and intense as we move towards chapter 13. You may have even noticed it tonight as we read the passage from the beginning of the story. The Pharisees are challenging Jesus' authority, especially as it relates to how he interprets and how he obeys the law. Well, the essential problem that Jesus addresses in these verses, the religious leader's greatest error, is that they lose sight of God. That is, they begin to miss what God is really like. And what God really cares about. It's a problem with human tradition. It tends to screen those things out and elevate the wrong things. It can happen when we attach God's name to causes that don't directly pertain to his kingdom. That, that's kind of a, a pattern you see, especially with the Pharisees. Or it can happen when you are trying to make sense of what God is doing in your life. It can happen when you're zealous to obey God and believe and do the right things. As we put that as our orientation and then go through life and, and maybe things don't always go the way we plan, we, we try to make sense of things. And we ask, all right, what is God like? What, what does he prioritize? What is he doing? Well, in Jesus' dispute with the Pharisees here in Matthew 12, we are given great insight into the things God cares about. And those principles, those ideas, those are the standard we should use to measure our own life and to measure our own ministry as a church. What does God care about? Well, three events in this passage supply an answer. Let's look at them. First, we see mercy, not sacrifice. The first two stories that we encounter in this chapter, they're centered around some kind of controversy. And the first begins when Jesus and his disciples are traveling through some grain fields on the Sabbath. And his hungry disciples pluck some heads of grain and begin to eat them. And the Pharisees, who apparently have been following Jesus, that always jumps out to me, the stories. Are they like hiding in the fields, ready to catch him? Well, apparently they're keeping tabs on him. And as they see the disciples do this, they accuse the disciples, you're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, in order to help us understand their concern with the Sabbath, such an objection may seem bizarre to us. It helps to have an idea of the importance of the Sabbath, both in the Old Testament and to Jews in Jesus' day. First, according to the scriptures, the Sabbath is both a creation ordinance, God built the world and rested on the seventh day and ordered mankind to do so there at the very beginning of creation. By the very example of God himself, we see the Sabbath as something that people should observe. And then at Mount Sinai, as God gives the Ten Commandments, it becomes part of God's moral commands. Again, there were even some commands before that, such as gathering the manna. But particularly there at Mount Sinai, God gives the fourth command to honor the Sabbath. Don't, don't work. And said, make, keep this day holy. And then, of course, other texts in Exodus say, look, this is going to be the sign of the covenant between God and Israel. This is how people will know you belong to me and that you keep the Sabbath day. 
And when it comes to those main ideas, those central foundational Sabbath ideas, you don't get any dispute from Jesus. That's not what he's challenging here. But in the time between the Old and New Testaments, the Sabbath took on even greater significance, and much man-made tradition grew up around it. So in the 2nd century B.C., during the time of the Maccabean resistance, we mentioned that last Sunday morning, again, in connection with circumcision. Can't compromise on that. You give your life if you're asked to deny that that is essential. Well, the Sabbath was another institution that was greatly challenged. And one time, in the middle of a battle in the mid-2nd century B.C., there was a community of Jews who had to answer the question, will we fight on the Lord's Day or on the Sabbath day? Will we defend ourselves? And about a thousand Jews, and that includes men, women, and children, died when they refused to defend themselves on the Sabbath day. Now, later battles said, you know, that was probably not the best decision, or they at least didn't make the same decision. Other examples of Jews fighting on the Lord's Day in self-defense. But I think that gives you a window into the level of scrutiny the Sabbath got. That they were like, okay, we've got to answer this question, even if it's a matter of life and death. And in the case of those thousand Jews, it was a matter of death. That was how they would distinguish themselves as the people of God. Observe the Sabbath. Be circumcised. That's how we know that we are God's people. Now, we've also mentioned before the Mishnah, which is this collection of Jewish oral traditions. So when you read some of these disputes that Jesus has, very likely those traditions were handed down and then later written down, codified in the Mishnah. We can't prove that it goes all the way back to the time of Christ, but many of its ideas are are probably present in some of these debates. And in one of the Mishnah tractates, There is an agreed list of 39 categories of activity, which were classified as work. And here's a few of them. Writing two letters. And I don't mean a letter to relatives. I mean A, B. That's work. Erasing in order to write two letters. You could write A and erase it, and then write B. No, no, no. That's still writing two letters. Can't do that. Taking anything from one domain to another, moving something from a private courtyard into another part of your property. And while the 39 categories don't explicitly include traveling, that was understood or regarded as work. So a Sabbath day's journey, that's a biblical phrase. The Mishnah defines as a little over a mile. Won't find that definition in the Bible. But the Mishnah was saying, well, let's nail it down. Let's determine what is a Sabbath day's journey. And you can only imagine that those rules must have made the Sabbath day incredibly inconvenient at best and a horrible burden at worst. So follow me here. This is where the Pharisees come in. And in order to make the Sabbath day manageable, they develop an elaborate system of boundary extension. Ways that would allow more freedom of movement without violating the basic rules. So follow me here. You've got a system that grows up around the Sabbath. The Pharisees develop a system to cope with the system. 
So, but, and then believe it or not, they were not trying to make life difficult. We, we, they often get a bad rap, and, and they deserve it. But their intention here wasn't actually to make life difficult. They're trying to say, hey, we know you have to be able to observe all those rules, so we need to come up with some practical ways for you to cope with the limits placed upon you by these various, these very rigorous understanding of work. They, they really just didn't want to leave anything to chance. They wanted to make sure that, that, that we could define it down and we could keep you safe. We don't want anyone to come close to violating the law, so we'll put up this fence around the law. Maybe you've heard that phrase before in these discussions. Well, here's how it comes back to the text. It's that fence that Jesus just encountered here. It's an invisible boundary, so to speak. And Jesus has just bumped up against the fence of the Pharisees' interpretation of how to observe all their traditions connected with the Sabbath. So again, the Old Testament said, the poor can go into someone else's field, and they can pick grain by hand. That's why you were to leave the corners uncut, so the poor would have something to eat. But the traditions might consider picking the grain less reaping. And rubbing it out of the husks into your hand to have a snack, well, that's threshing. And those two, by the way, are, are mentioned in the 39 forbidden acts. So when they see Jesus doing that, they don't just think, oh, he doesn't really respect our traditions. They say, he is violating the law. We've fleshed out what it means to keep the law. He's violating that. He is breaking God's law. So how does Jesus respond? He gives two examples. From the Old Testament. First, in verses 1, in verses 3 through 4, he responds in two ways. The first is with two examples. So in verses 3 and 4, he refers to this story from 1 Samuel 21. This is where David flees from Saul and comes to Nob. And Nob is where the sanctuary has been set up. It was originally in Shiloh when the Israelites came into the Promised Land. The tabernacle was there. But the Philistines destroyed Shiloh, and the tabernacle was relocated to Nob. You know, eventually it gets to Jerusalem. But David arrives here at Nob, the temporary home of the sanctuary. And he asks for some bread. And Ahimelech, the priest, gives him the old consecrated bread. And if you're wondering what that is, that's the showbread. Those 12 loaves that were prepared weekly, they sit in the tabernacle in the light of of the lampstand there. They're displayed for a week, and it's the duty of the priest to put fresh bread on the table every Sabbath day. And the old loaves are given to Aaron and his descendants, and they eat them in the holy place. And again, the Old Testament itself says it's only for the priests and their families. It's not for guests. It's right there stated in Leviticus 22, I believe. But here comes David. And Ahimelech gives him the bread. What right does Ahimelech have to give this bread to David? Well, one, David was in need. And two, David was the king. And so here's what Ahimelech discerned from the law itself, knowing full well what the law said about the bread. Ahimelech was able to read the law in such a way that he understood God's ultimate priorities, and that God's highest priorities 
would be to preserve the king's life. That would take priority over the law that only allowed the priest to eat the old bread. And Himelech had learned to read his Bible in such a way that he understood God's purposes with his covenant people are to give them life. That is why we even have tabernacle worship in the first place. That is why we have a priesthood in the first place. Because God is entering this sin-cursed, death-cursed world and giving life. And therefore, I will give life by giving this bread to the king. And we could maybe even tease out the significance of David being the king, thus a picture of the Messiah, and how that would tie into God's saving purposes. But it's really the same logic that allows Jesus to say to the Sadducees, how have you not read the story of Moses at the burning bush and figured out that there's a resurrection? And, you know, we could read that story ten times. Would we figure out resurrection from the burning bush? But God's whole point is there'd be no covenant God saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if there wasn't going to be life. And life from the dead. That is what God is all about. Reversing the curse. Bringing life out of death. And Himalayah saw that. And the second example is in verse 5, a very simple one, where Jesus refers to the law that requires priests to work on the Sabbath day. They have to still offer the sacrifices on the Sabbath day. Some kinds of work are obviously permitted on the Sabbath day. So those are the two examples. And in verse 6, Jesus makes the statement that ties everything together. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If we have a law that allows special circumstances for dating, and if we have a law that allows the priest to work on the Sabbath day, God expects his people to take two commands that appear to contradict and figure out which one takes priority. And Jesus is saying, if we've got all those circumstances going on, how much more will it allow Jesus, the greatest king, the son of David, the greatest priest, the embodiment of the temple itself. Can he not do what must be done on the Sabbath day to preserve and give life? Absolutely. That is what Ahimelech realized. That God delighted in relieving the physical misery of hunger. And that God delighted in relieving the spiritual misery of sin. That's why priests offer sacrifice on the Sabbath day. They preach the gospel. So if God delights in relieving the misery of sin in a sin-cursed creation, how much more should Jesus and his disciples eat and enjoy God's good gifts and relieve the misery imposed by the situations of this life. And that's why Jesus cites Hosea 6, 6 and verse 7. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. You should have figured it out, religious leaders. You Pharisees found guilt where God did not. And if you knew what God really wants, you wouldn't condemn the innocent. So what does God really want? Mercy and not sacrifice. One writer puts it like this. In God's scale of priorities, a positive concern for the good of others, mercy, 
takes precedence over formal compliance with, with, with ritual regulations. Jesus would rather us sustain life than follow an interpretation of the rules that would prevent such. Now let's look at what else, thank God, prioritizes. In verses 9 through 14, we see he prioritizes life, not death. Let's look at the second story. It's going to flow right out of this one. They're, they're strongly connected. The first story ends in verse 8 with Jesus' statement, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And that ties into both stories. So I'm going to bring that one at the end of the second story. So after the disagreement with the Pharisees over grain, but probably on the same day, Jesus enters a local synagogue. And inside the synagogue, he encounters a man with a shriveled or a paralyzed hand. And this time the Pharisees take the initiative. Let's raise an issue of Sabbath observance. Let's make this a test case and catch Jesus. And they ask him in verse 10, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And here's the background for this question. The view that one should attempt to heal on the Sabbath. According to the Mishnah, you should attempt to heal on the Sabbath only if the person's life was in danger. So the Mishnah's discussions are, are kind of assuming that healing would not be allowed on the Sabbath. And so they're simply permitting an exception. Or they're just trying to say, okay, well, in what situations might an exception be permitted? Certainly if the person's dying. They were willing to grant that. But a paralyzed arm? That's no threat to life. He's not going to die because he's got a paralyzed hand. And so their conclusion is that Jesus should not heal it. How does Jesus respond? He, this time, appeals to an example that they should agree with. He says in verse 11, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, by the way, there was actually one Jewish community, the community at Qumran, where they did not permit helping animals on the Sabbath. If they fall into it, it's recorded in their writings. You have access to them because of the Dead Sea Scrolls and other literature that's been found. If the animal falls in, too bad. Get it out the next day. The later rabbis, however, in other Jewish writings, they show a different spirit. They say, well, you could throw something into the hole and the animal could use that to climb out. So don't get it out yourself, but you can help him get out. Um, or they say, well, if you, if you fed it on the Sabbath, that would be okay. Because then you could get it out the next day. So keep it alive in the pit and do the work of getting it out the next day. But the conclusion they actually come to is, all right, we should allow the relief of animal suffering. That should override the Sabbath regulation. Now again, if those date back to Jesus' day, he is, he is teeing off right there. And saying in verse 12, well... How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And that's when he tells the man, stretch out your hand. And Jesus heals him completely. And what does this show us about God's priorities? It shows us that just as God values mercy over sacrifice, so God values life over death. And we already got right into that because of the previous section. This just reinforces the priority there that God puts 
on life over death. That's what the gospel and the covenant are all about. And so this is what I love about the story. Jesus is not merely saying, oh yeah, it's legitimate to heal on the Sabbath. He's saying, this is the best day for giving life. I'm reminded of a parallel story in Luke 13. Jesus heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath. And there the Pharisees are more direct. They say, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Now this woman had been crippled for 18 years. And so Jesus says, should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, shouldn't, be, shouldn't she be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? I, I don't think the implication is merely, oh, it's permissible. I think Jesus is saying, you can't show me a better day to heal than this day. And that is why we celebrate the Sabbath. This is why we proclaim God's word on the Sabbath. This is why we celebrate the life in the gospel that he gives on the Sabbath day. And so what I want you to see is it's not just Jesus saying, yeah, that, that Sabbath thing, man, that, that's a burden, that's bad. No, he's saying your way of approaching it is what's bad. But it is a good gift that God has given you that you should utilize for your good and for life. That is why Jesus says, if not here, in another context, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It is God's good gift to you. And so that is what Jesus is doing with this man. Who knows how this paralyzed hand had affected him? How many of us would want to give up the use of one of our hands? It may have made him unable to work. It may have made him an outcast of sorts because of the effects of his hand. We're not told that. But in healing his hand, Jesus gives the hand life. And in giving a hand life, Jesus gives a measure of dignity and quality to this man's life that he had never had. And Jesus says, that is what I prioritize on the Sabbath day, the giving of life. Spiritual life through the preaching of the gospel, physical and emotional and mental life by relieving the burdens of the oppressed, giving life and rest to you by giving you a day off so you can go back to your work tomorrow and live for God's glory, having been refreshed, not exhausted, by the Sabbath day. So, of course, woe to us as, as religious leaders if we are not careful to make the Sabbath a delight and a day of rest and refreshment, not exhaustion by our traditions. And that then is why Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the law's perfect, authoritative interpreter. He's the ideal human who represents us to God, and he has come to tell us what God desires most. Mercy, not sacrifice. Life, not death. And lastly, Hope, not despair. And this is captured in the Old Testament citation, which occurs here in verses 18 through 21. Jesus having made these statements about the Sabbath, and of course that's threatening a whole industry, the whole scribal industry of Sabbath regulation. Well, that's why the Pharisees go out and plot how they might kill him. He's a threat. If, if that behavior spreads, God will not bless us. God will judge us. And of course, there's an industry under threat 
as well. So Jesus withdraws from there. And he even asks the crowds that follow him, hey, keep quiet about me. It's not time for a major confrontation yet. That, that time is yet to come. And Matthew interprets all this through the lens of Isaiah 42. That's what's quoted in verses 18 through 21. I'll just read these and make the final point. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory, and in his name the nations will put their hope. Quite simply, Matthew is viewing Jesus here as the promised servant. I've said this many times. The one who arises from Israel to do for Israel what she can't do for herself. To represent her to God, to obey, to pay for her sins, and to receive life for her faithful obedience unto death. That is the role that Jesus assumes. And he does it in a way where he humbly submits to God's plan and treats the outcast and the vulnerable with tenderness and gentleness. And that's the point here of this imagery where Jesus says, I won't break the bruised reed. I won't extinguish the smoldering wick. That's what those man-made traditions are doing to you. But Jesus isn't like that. You use a reed to measure. If it's broken, if it's bruised, it's useless. It's like a broken uh, measuring tape. A wick is, is made from strips of linen cloth. If they just smoked, if they didn't burn, they were worthless. But, but Jesus doesn't put out the smoking one. He fans it into a flame. He's come to encourage the damaged and vulnerable. He's come to give them the opportunity to succeed in a very results-oriented society, an opportunity that society would deny them. And many didn't want to hear that message. The Pharisees, in fact, want to kill him to turn it off. But by that death, that's how the servant will have success. That's how he'll bring justice through to victory. And that is how the nations will come to put their hope in his name. And that's our final idea. Jesus brings hope, not despair. This whole ministry, even unto death, is to bring about hope. Hope in God. Hope in who God really is. So whatever your experience might be at times, don't allow anything, whether from people, church, <coughs> tough circumstances, society, don't, don't let anything be a, a cloud or, or a dirty pair of glasses, so to speak, that keep you from seeing Jesus in all his beauty as he is revealed here in the scriptures. And I'll be praying that we know that grace this week. So let's pray together as we go. Father in heaven, we just stand for this final moment in, in adoration. We bow in humble adoration of you. This is the Savior. This is what our faith, our religion, Christianity is all about. This is what Scripture points to. We've gotten to the heartbeat of God and the Holy Scriptures tonight. I just pray you'd help us to see that, to rejoice in that, to celebrate that, to believe that, and to live in a way that is transformed by that. We, we love the Lord's day. We long to enjoy it as you intended for it to be enjoyed and to give glory to you. 
We want to live as your people in this world and be ambassadors of King Jesus and represent him to others and have others taste and see that the Lord is good. So make us more like the Savior, forgive us of our sins, and help us to go out as the people that bear his name, that live faithfully as he was faithful. Go with us, keep us safe, and know your grace. Remember whatever needs may arise this week, give comfort to your people, and help us to love, worship, and serve you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.